Open the Word of God, please, to First First Peter four fourteen. First Peter four fourteen. We continue our journey through First Peter, and Lord willing, when we finish First Peter, we will go directly into Second Peter. So we're going to see everything Peter's got to to tell us. And let me get my. No problem, David. It's on me here. Okay. Yeah. Let's go ahead and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. I know several of you have different translations and paraphrases, and that's fine. But this is where I'm starting. If, and that's if and it's true. We already know they're facing a lot of suffering. So you could almost translate this since. That's the import. Since and it's true. Or if, and it's true, you are reviled for the name of Christ. Not for being a self-righteous jerk, but for the name of Christ. Sometimes some of us have been reviled for being self-righteous jerks, and that's not the same thing. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That's like the worst case scenario in the world, but uh, you're blessed in part because the spirit of glory, you could render that the glorious spirit of God rests on you. Uh, where did the glorious Spirit of God rest in the Old Testament? In the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and then the, the temple. Tabernacle was the tent, it was movable, temple was the permanent building, right? In the New Testament, we don't have one central sanctuary, one temple or tabernacle. We got multicultural, multinational, uh, millions and billions of sanctuaries, and so, uh, Jan Palovic and Ron Miller and Olga Pollock are temples of the Holy Spirit where the glorious Spirit of God rests. Now, if you're revealed for the name of Christ, that's one thing, but make sure that you're not reviled or attacked or uh, arrested or indicted uh, as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But, going back to verse 14... If anyone suffers as a Christian for the name of Christ, he's not to be ashamed, disappointed in himself or in God, but is to glorify God in this name. You know, quite often when someone is painting something to be effective, they must apply multiple coats of paint. And the book of First Peter is like that in a sense because this book is telling believers how to think about and process suffering in their own lives and among people they love. And to accomplish that purpose, he has to tell us, and he does tell us the same basic thing multiple times. It's like putting multiple coats of paint on a, on a metal door or something like that. And so he tends to say the same thing in slightly different ways. But each time he says the same thing in a slightly different way, he adds additional nuance uh, or uh, or insight. And that, so in a way I could say, nothing we're going to read about today in this passage hasn't already been said in this book, but it's still very important because uh, each time we're getting additional insights that we need to know. And today we're going to look at uh, suffering in the Christian life, roots and responses, kind of causes and then uh, how we should react. So that's what we're going to try to do today from this passage. 
But let's pray uh, sincerely for teachability, that the Holy Spirit who inspired this text would illumine it to us, and that the teaching would come through and the teacher wouldn't get too much in the way. And as we do that, we also want to pray for our peace officers and our firefighters and our active military. Okay? So, uh, Clay, uh, pray for us in that direction, would you? Thank you. Uh, in order to fully warm up our capacity for abstract thinking here, Gibson, before we dive into God's Word, uh, I thought we'd play a little game. That, But I'm going to need a volunteer to help us with the game. And uh, let's see. Who's, uh, Zach, come here for a minute. I want you to be, uh, you just got volunteered, right? Uh, I'm going to show you four mock uh, headlines. And after I show you the headline, I'm going to give you this PowerPoint slide. What's the problem? And when I show the what's the problem, I want the huge crowd to, to take that in. And then I want you to do some kind of like, something like this. Put your hands up like that and say, like, what's the problem? You know, let's see how, let's see what you're going to look like. Now, more facial expression, kind of more. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So every time you see that slide, just wait, you know, a beat and then do that, what you just did. And as soon as he does that, then I want you in unison to say, what's the problem? Okay. So let's practice that once. Okay. Hold on. Okay. That's great. Okay, here's mock headline number one. Waitress pays rent with million-dollar gospel track. What's the, What's the problem with these million-dollar gospel tracks that people pass out? It's a bogus way to try to spread the gospel. It's a gimmick, you know? And some Christians would go so far as to leave a gospel tract and no tip. And uh, my oldest son was a waiter at Eduardo's for many years to pay his car insurance when he was in high school. And uh, he said, Dad, you wouldn't believe the way some of these preachers don't tip. <laughs> so that's not a good thing. Okay. Next. Man sitting literally three feet away from Bible asked God to speak to him. Uh, I don't know. Uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be mature, thoroughly furnished in all good works. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and joints of the marrow, and is a critic of thoughts and intents of the heart. Study to show thyself a workman that not, needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing word of truth. Little things like that <laughs> might be the problem. Yeah, you know what? I, I didn't do what's the problem, did I? Uh, okay, okay, good. Okay. Now, this one is integrally connected to the previous one. <laughs> Preacher hired after demonstrating supernatural ability to quote Dumb and Dumber. Do I really need to give you the problem on that? I mean, uh, we're... We've decided people really like movies, and they really like Oprah, and they really like stuff out in the culture. So let's bring the, the dancing elephants, because dancing elephants draw crowds. Let's bring that into the Christian church, and we end up not Christianizing America. We end up Americanizing Christianity, uh, and it's not good. Here's my favorite one. Tim Tebow, who's playing minor league baseball, and pretty well considering uh, it's not an easy sport. 
that level. Tim Tebow awarded first base after a high fastball strikes his halo. He didn't have a halo. People are not the same thing as angels. Okay, That was a good job, Thursday. Thank you. Appreciate that. Hours of practice to make that, that happen. Uh, this morning in our three verses, we're going to look at suffering in the Christian life, roots and responses. We're going to see good suffering, bad suffering, and more good suffering, which leads to the question, what is good suffering? What is bad suffering? Well, we introduced these categories to you last time, and let me review them with you briefly, and, and we'll look at those before we actually look at the passage here, kind of help us think in, in uh, more organized fashion about what we're reading about. Uh, Bad suffering. Bad suffering is suffering because we've done something bad. That's why I call that bad suffering. Uh, bad suffering, and notice uh, um, verse 15 in our passage, make sure that none of you suffers because you've committed murder or because you stole something or you're just doing evil things or you're just causing trouble for everybody else. Uh, bad suffering is, direct, is the direct result of bad Sinful attitudes and or actions. Now, uh, that's not the only reason Christians suffer, but that's one reason Christians suffer. Now, the, the thing about the book of Job is Job's friends assumed if he's suffering, he must have done something wrong. And that's not always the issue at all. But it can be, okay? So if you're mean, crude, and nasty to your wife as a Christian man, and you're supposed to love your wife like Christ loved the church... Uh, you're going to have some fall blowback on that, I hope. You're going to have some fallout on that, and it's your fault. I think God allows bad suffering to happen as a spiritual blowtorch to kind of drive us back uh, to fellowship with him and uh, to cause us to kind of deal with the reality of our bad choices and realize the consequences are really our fault, and you have to work through them. So I think the response to bad suffering... Uh, when you have suffering in your life, you can't get along with your boss, but you show up late, you leave early, you've got a crummy attitude, uh, you're less productive than anybody else, and when everybody else is supposed to be at a staff meeting, you're doing your personal Bible study and devotions at work? They're not paying you to do personal Bible study and devotions. You're supposed to do that on your own, own time, you know, kind of thing. Then you need to repent. You need to change your mind and stop rationalizing or redefining what you're doing and take responsibility for it, and to the extent you can, deal with the consequences and stop the cause, right? So that's bad suffering. Suffering because of our uh, sin or sin of uh, selfishness, I should say. Good suffering. There's no such thing as good suffering. I don't like to suffer either. But good suffering in this system is suffering caused because or in spite of the fact we're doing the good thing. We're doing the right thing. Uh, I've talked to many Christian people I know who've got crummy bosses, that these people show up early and leave late and give 110% and don't do their Bible study during their, their uh, time they're supposed to be in their group meetings and this and that, and they work, I'm sure, harder than anybody else, and the boss treats them like, uh, you know, like uh, they're trash. And the cool thing about uh, this situation is you can always get another job. You can always get another boss in most cases. But good suffering is because of or in spite of our faith and our righteous lifestyle. And so why would God let that happen? And that's what the book of First Peter is mainly about, good suffering, right? They're being persecuted because of their faith. 
I know Joel Osteen tells you the only kind of suffering happens is because you don't have enough faith. You gotta just believe you're gonna get what you think you should get and it's God's job to give it to you, you know? He's gotta hurry or scurry around, and make sure you're happy. It's not the way it works. It doesn't work in the third world for sure. It doesn't work very long here in the, in the first world. But, uh, most of the suffering in First Peter is good suffering. Uh, and God allows that, I think, for, in His providence and His, His plan, uh, in part as a spiritual barbell. You know, in theory, if you work your muscles against resistance, they get stronger. So as you work your faith against resistance, it gets stronger. Right? So they call those workouts, not playouts. You know, uh, some, some of my friends that work out with me, not Ken. Ken works like a, uh, you know, a banshee out there when he works out. But I mean, some of these guys, some of these guys that mainly exercise their jaw muscles, you know, because they, they go from people who are actually working out and talk to them. Uh, and you know who you are there, Dan and James, if you listen to this. I don't think they listen to these tapes, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, some, they take the they park as close as they can to the Simmons Center door. They take the elevator up, which they're not supposed to do. That's for people that really need it. They take a slow walk to the machine. They sit on the machine and talk to the guy next to them. They get on a different machine, talk to the guy next to them. If there's a pretty girl, they walk over and talk to the pretty girl who's working out. And uh, then they go sit down and drink a couple of Cokes. You know, and, uh, you know, it just doesn't uh, result in a lot of good stuff but uh, for them. So... It's workouts, you know. God will give us a workout to so so we can see kind of where we are spiritually and we can get stronger. And then there's what I would call inherent or maybe inevitable. Uh, those are, I can't decide which one I want to use. I put inherent on the handout and inevitable on the, on the PowerPoint. I think I kind of like inevitable better. But it's because we are physical beings in a fallen, dying world, right? It's just the inevitable bane you know, I've got spiritual blowtorch for bad suffering, spiritual barbell for good suffering. So I had to have something start with a B there, blowtorch, barbell. So I had Bane, but I came up with a better one. Uh, inherent suffering is kind of a spiritual barometer. Starts with a B, right? Uh, that's about air pressure, right? Well, here we mean it is teaching you the now is real and it's really important, but it's not ultimate and it's only temporary, I mean, as, as Christians, we've got a resurrected Savior who died, okay, Lindell, and came out the other side. And I know you know that. And I know you've trusted him. But, you know, we, we act like all we've got is, is the now, and we've got all eternity for all these things to, all the scores to be settled and all these things, all these questions we have uh, to be resolved. So I think uh, we respond to bad suffering with repentance. We change our minds. We stop rationalizing or redefining what we're doing that's causing our problem. And then we return to faithfulness. God, I think in good suffering, when you're persecuted for being a believer, you do the right thing and people treat you like dirt anyway. Uh, you rejoice because they actually noticed you're different. Okay? And you don't doubt, pout, and drop out. And just remain faithful. And then as far as inherent suffering, like, you know, uh, man, you know, sometimes you live as old as I do. You lose your hair. You lose your hearing. You lose your sight. You lose your... I'm starting to even lose my good looks, you know? And... uh these things can happen to you if you live long enough. As some, I think Mickey Mantle said, if I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. You know, so I'm starting to think that myself. But I think the response to inherent suffering is to recognize present reality. We live in a fallen world where our children can get diabetes. And that happens to believers and unbelievers. They don't say anything negative about the Skinners. 
uh, in fact, I might say something very positive about them, really, spiritually. So you recognize that's where we are right now, and you rally in light of all that we have to look forward to in the future. I think the, the aches and pains of earth make you look forward to heaven that much more. And that's really where we ought to be. Uh, our hearts should be anyway. So with those categories in mind, it's interesting when you look at these three verses. Verse 14 talks about good suffering. Verse 15 talks about bad suffering. And then verse 14 comes back to the theme of good suffering. So, you know, I would like even maybe Michael call that like a hamburger structure because you got a top bun and a bottom bun talking about good suffering. Then you got the meat in the middle, the bad suffering. So let's look at verse 14 again. And we're thinking of thinking about uh, this as a expression of good suffering. Suffering because we're, we're doing the right thing or in spite of the fact we're doing the right thing. If you have been reviled, you've been uh, maligned, marginalized, made fun of. Uh, if you're living in North Korea, it's a, it's a felony to own a Bible in North Korea because it destabilizes the regime, right? So there are at least 100,000 uh, prisoners in work camps, not unlike Nazi Germany, in the interior of North Korea, there may be double that many people. It's a horrific, it's a horrific place, especially for Christians. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You're not cursed from God's perspective, from the spiritual perspective, because somebody actually noticed you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're different enough that people have noticed, and their rejection of you is actually a backhanded compliment. When facing good suffering, suffering for the, doing the right things, we should actually rejoice and realize we're blessed, uh, and we can rest and enjoy the eye of the hurricane. Now, I know most of you already know this very well, but uh, verse 14 is plural, second person plural, so we would say in Oklahoma, if all y'all are reviled, and that's first class condition in the Greek, it means if and it's true, so since all y'all are being reviled for the name of Christ, don't, don't uh, be bummed out, actually... Rejoice because you're actually in a blessed state. Uh, uh, God is pouring out his uh, uh, affirmation of you. Now, go back to chapter 1, verse 1. You know, this book is written to people who have been forced to relocate because of persecution against them because of their faith. So it starts in the very first verse that we often misread or blow through. Uh, Peter, the human author of this book, is writing to those who reside as aliens, parapidemois, as uh, exiles, as uh, persecuted and hunted folks who've left their homes near Syria, uh, 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 in Antioch of Syria, and have gone into different aspects of Turkey, and he's using the Roman Empire uh, regional terms there in verse 1. Go to verse 6 of chapter 1. In this thinking about all you've got to look forward to in heaven. You rejoice now. You don't doubt, pout, and drop out because you've got all of eternity to look forward to, even though now for a little while, and it may just be you know, 50 or 60 years worth for you, but that's a blip compared to eternity. If necessary, according to God's purposes, you have been distressed by various trials. Uh, look at 111. The Old Testament prophets were wanting to know about the Christ, the main character of the Old Testament is the Christ, the Messiah, who's going to come as they predicted the sufferings of Christ. This idea that Christians should suffer should not be strange, right? We said that last week because uh, our symbol is a cross. It's not a couch, right? 
And if you think about what a cross is, to align with the cross inherently brings rebuke and uh, pain and uh, even torture. 2, 11, and 12. As you guys know, this is the purpose statement. I hope some of you are saying, he didn't review the structure of the book and the purpose statement. Because I've done that like every week. But I thought I'd give you a week off. But here it comes. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world, and aliens where they're living now just politically, because they're away from their homes and their culture, to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers, even though it may bring more good suffering over a period of time, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, because they actually believe in a resurrected Savior, that's the way the culture would have thought about them, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them now, glorify God in the day of visitation. Uh, look at 2.18, talking about suffering, good and bad. Servants, he's talking about Christians who are household servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those masters who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So you're actually facing uh, good suffering because you're doing the right thing, and uh, you haven't done the wrong thing, but they don't like you. For this finds favor for the sake of conscience toward God, uh, Amanda Birch or Doug Strange bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly or unfairly. Uh, you did nothing wrong, and yet bad things happen to you. Verse 21, for you've been called for this very purpose since Christ suffered for you, and he suffered unfairly. Uh, leaving you an example uh, to follow in his steps. He did nothing wrong. He was on the cross for our sin, not his but being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he had no threats. But here's the key. He kept entrusting himself to the person of God the Father and the plan. And he was there to serve. And he was the sendee, not the sender. Uh, but he kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. Look at three nine, chapter 3, verse 9. And this is interesting because this is in a, in a church context now. We're not talking about the way the world's looking at these folks. But he says in the previous verse, uh, to sum up, as far as the way you relate to other Christians, all of you are to be harmonious, easy to get along with, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit toward one another, fellow believers. The flip side is don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. As Jesus says, turn the other cheek. That's not assault. That's social insult. We're not supposed to make a huge deal about. Uh, so if you don't call me, see, if you don't call me, the Dr. Reverend Brad McCoy, you know, I don't get real mad about it. I mean, you know, I go home and I cry my milk, and which I'm not supposed to drink my milk. Sharon just told me you're supposed to drink uh, cow milk is very bad for you, at least according to Dr. Uh, Bearden back there. But I always get over it. I always come back the next Wednesday or whatever. I'm, you know, I'm kidding. You know, the baptism technique, what's the baptism technique? How do you get along with other believers? Because they're not perfect like you think you are. You gotta hold, you gotta hold your nose and bend way over backward. And that's part of the joy of being in a, a local church. You get to do that a lot. And that's part of the, you know, reason that you're supposed to do that instead of just dropping out and starting your own. Uh, but giving a blessing and said, for you were called for this very purpose. That's part of the job description, you might say. Look at 314. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, even if you should face continued good suffering, you're blessed. Does that sound familiar? That's our verse in chapter 4. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Now, it's interesting. In 3.14, he just says you're blessed. 
In 4.14, he says you're blessed in part because that just confirms the fact you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, and somebody noticed you're different. So if you won't uh, say or do certain things with the boys, uh, rather than that making you weirdo, which I guess it does in their terminology, it actually just confirms uh, that God's at work in your life, and that's always a good thing. Uh, chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, we saw this last week. Beloved fellow believers, don't be surprised when bad things happen in the fallen world. Don't be totally surprised when your world can change with a phone call. And your, your, your world can change with one for, your world can change with one text. You know that, right? So, uh, you know, when things are going good, you know, cheer up. It's going to get worse. <laughs> Don't be surprised at the fire ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing so you can confirm uh, your faith in the world, which is always a good thing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, not redemptive sufferings, but sufferings for the same reason, for righteousness, for truth, for who he is. Keep on rejoicing so that also you can have special superlative joy at his coming. And just like the tougher the battle, the more joy in the victory. And then he says, verse 14, our verse again, if you're reviled, if and when, since you're going to be reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because you're actually demonstrating your holy temple of the Holy Spirit. Notice for the name, when we're talking about the name, the name, the name, we believe in the name. We're not talking about the letters of the word that is the moniker of Jesus. You don't hear that word moniker very much anymore, do you? But moniker means your name, okay? So when we're talking about uh, we don't trust in chariots, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I've been thinking about that a lot as you think about North Korea, you know. Uh, we've got, I mean, we could turn them into a parking lot, but we won't do that. We refuse to you know, kill 50 million people, most of whom are innocent stooges. You know, they, they don't know what's going on. They have been isolated from the outside world, and they actually, they actually believe these leaders they have that are part of a dynasty, you know, are basically like superhuman, you know. Like uh, the father of the current guy, remember he shot one round of golf? Remember that story, Ron? They built a golf course in Point Yang to try to bring tourists in because, you know, Dennis Rodman needs something to do when he's in town. You know, and the previous leader, Kim Jong-il, the guy we've got now is Kim Jong-un. Uh, Kim Jong-il, and he had a brother, his name was mentally ill, but that was a different thing. <laughs> but Kim Jong-il played golf one time on the national golf course, and he shot 18 holes, and he shot like, what was it, 46 or something? According to the, 46 for 18 holes. He had like four holes in one, a couple of double eagles. He never played golf before. Nobody actually saw, there's no film, you know, but uh, these people, you know, believe in fantasy land. But uh, we do live in a, in a fallen world. But uh, talking about moniker here, we're not just believing that uh, you spell Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, or if you're going to use the Aramaic Yeshua, however you spell that, I'm not sure, uh, but I'll probably figure it out with no people watching me. Uh, I could look it up, Google it. But... Uh, the name of someone, the name of Christ here, means who he is and what he has done and for us what he will do. So we're not talking about the letters of his name. We're talking about who this person is, his character, uh, his position. Uh, and what he is is the unique person of the universe. I mean, in the beginning, God, and God existed in three persons and always has been. 
you know what? There's only four options about ultimate reality. If anything now exists, if the universe isn't imaginary, if you're not just dreaming this, if anything now exists, something or someone must be eternal outside of time and space, or else the source of everything now popped into existence out of nothing and by nothing. So uh, in the beginning, God is the most logically uh, valid statement you can say about the universe we live in. Uh, and that God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I mean, I tested this all day yesterday. It worked so good. But uh, you don't think there are demons in this place? I mean, they're, they, they're all around my... my uh, what do you call this thing? It's a laser pointer? Yeah. But, you know, in the incarnation, what's happening in Bethlehem is the virgin birth. But the real miracle was the virgin conception. And by the way, you know what? I meant to mention when we prayed earlier to be sure and pray for Julie and for Nicole because this Tuesday is big because, because like you're going to show up at 5 a.m. at the hospital and they're going to have a C-section about 7 a.m., right? And Logan will be here, right? And then uh, the drugs are doing the opposite end of the spectrum. They're rather than going in really early Tuesday, they're going. They're going to roll in at five or at eight. We're going to start the induction process. Not not we, not me personally, but <laughs> right. And you know, our our first son was induced, and he he's turned out really well, you know. But uh, but I mean. <laughs> We had to be there like six in the morning. This is in Dallas, Texas, you know, and, the, and he arrived about what four thirty or five. Uh, and you know, me and Trey have figured out why would you have a lady, beautiful lady like Julie, come in and not induce until eight p.m. because it takes about usually about eight hours for the baby to come, and the doctor needs a good night's sleep. So that's that's probably the reason they don't they charge you like ten percent off for that though, right? Yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, when we're talking about the name of Jesus, we're talking about who he is and what he did, what he will do. He's the unique person of the universe. Uh, Bethlehem is the virgin birth. Nine months before is, is the real biggie, virgin conception. How does the second person of the Holy Trinity take on humanity without ceasing to be deity in the form of a baby in utero? I have no idea. I can't reproduce that in the lab for you, and nobody else can either, but that's what happened. John 1.14, the word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he's the unique person in the universe, and this is so perfect because on the cross, after living a perfectly righteous life, the God-man Savior hangs between heaven and earth, and he's the perfect mediator to connect God and man. He bears our sins on the cross. He makes a once-for-all sacrificial, atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world, and all who trust in him receive that, the benefits of that, and the gift of eternal life. Uh, what happens three days after his death? The resurrection. And without the physical bodily resurrection, Jesus is just a virtuous martyr, which is, uh, we were talking about some people on the more evangelical side are trying to uh, you know, make Christian Christianity just another movie title. Uh, on the far left, they're just denying the uh, vicarious sacrifice of Jesus, just openly, you know, which is the whole essence of the thing. But uh, the empty tomb uh, and the risen Christ is the, the the epicenter of human history and the plan of God for eternal salvation for humanity. Uh, I like to talk about the empty tomb and the empty cross 
And when I say empty tomb, that's obvious. The, the tomb's empty because the dead body of Christ was resurrected and left the tombs. That's why the, the tomb was empty. But when I say empty cross, that almost sounds sacrilegious. But what I mean is, uh, as the Reformers said, our symbol is not a crucifix. It's not Jesus suffering on a cross. It's just the cross because he suffered once, and that's been trumped by the resurrection. We we are saved because of a resurrected Savior who was crucified for our sins. We're not just saved because a cruci- somebody was crucified. You know, uh, There were a lot of people crucified, but Jesus was uh, judged by the Father while he's on that cross and was resurrected. And so they're, be- they're being reviled for the name of Christ, and we will too, especially in our culture. We're going to be marginalized and, and made fun of and, and eventually probably criminalized, but some of us may outlive that, but it's moving pretty quickly. But that's an example of good suffering. You're blessed when that happens. Why are you blessed when that happens? Because the spirit of glory, the glorious spirit of God, rests on you enough that can tell raise a believer at Walmart, which is a hard place to be a believer, right? Hard place to live your faith, right? So that's verse 14, good suffering. Now let's look at verse 15. Talking about bad suffering. When facing bad suffering, we should repent, change our minds, stop rationalizing and redefining. Man, after 35 years in the pastorate, you hear some amazing rationalization by some people about stuff that's pretty black and white. But, talking about suffering, make sure none of you suffers because you've done bad stuff. And he lists some stuff that's really pretty bad, right? Uh, don't suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a thief. Don't suffer as an evildoer. Don't suffer as a troublesome meddler. Uh, for some people, it's hard to believe that Christians could commit murder or steal stuff, but I, I've known enough Christians, I have no doubt that Christians can murder and steal stuff, you know? Uh, and they can certainly be evildoers and troublesome meddlers, because I see that quite often. Uh, it, you know, but it's, it's amazing, even some Christians want to rationalize their pet sins, even while they're very sensitive to other people's issues that, in my opinion, quite often are much less serious than what the other person's rationalizing. Uh, I can think of several people over the years who have basically been extremely self-centered, very petty, uh, always mad about something, usually me, I mean, not, not always, sometimes it's Dale, you know, uh, hypercritical, uh, gossip and exaggeration and slander, and then to the extent they talk to me, they come to me and they tell me they don't like the church, and I'll say why, and they say, nobody around here likes me. And I'm going, huh? You've burned every bridge. Everybody who's tried to connect with you, you know, you've broken their heart, and uh, even when they're using the baptism technique, and the problem is, you don't have any friends? How could you possibly have any friends, you know? I mean, it's impossible. I believe in miracles, you know, but <laughs> that just doesn't happen that often, by definition. But And, and you know, we, hey, we've all got blind spots, and uh, for me, there have been a lot, it may be this message. Sometimes I'll say something that frankly is probably inappropriate or just said the wrong way or with the wrong tone. And I force myself to listen to these. I know Michael forces himself to listen to these as he puts them on the website. And occasionally I just want to kick myself. I mean, I can't believe I sounded that bad. I mean, really. So it's never maliciously intended. But, uh, you know, when I, when that happens to me the next couple of weeks, I'm on my best behavior. So just so you'll know. So. If you want to tell me I'm a jerk because something I said, I've probably already felt the same way about it in many cases. 
Uh, but look at this list. Uh, make sure none of you suffers as a murderer. King David was a murderer. Uh, as a thief, Jacob stole his birthright, his brother's birthright. Evildoer. Well, let's say uh, Peter uh, wanting to j- tell Jesus he wasn't going to permit him to go to the cross. That's a pretty evil thing to do when you understand the plan of God. And when Peter is denying Jesus as ever ever knowing Jesus and denying that he ever knew Jesus in public and cussing about it, that's that's pretty evil, you know. Uh, troublesome meddler, you know. Got David, Jacob, and Peter. Sounds like a Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith group of people. Troublesome meddler. I could fill in a couple of names, but I'm not going to do that. Not not. Uh, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But uh, I would just say I think Jesus taught something about. Don't obsess about everybody else's issues when you've got a telephone pole sticking out of your eye. Don't worry about the little speck in somebody's eye when you've got your own issues. And typically, uh, we've, got a, we've got a lot of issues we could probably deal with. And some things come up and they're so egregious you have to deal with them. I get that. But uh, be careful about that. Now, by the way, just as we do have a little time here, look at Revelation 21. This is a good time to mention this. Well, you know, Brad, you said that he's talking to believers here in verse 15, but that's not possible, especially that murderer part. And I've never committed a murder, and I'm not for murder. You know, I'm, not, I'm totally not, I'm not for it. I'm not trying to give you a secret message here that I'm secretly murdering people or in favor of murder, because uh, I'm not. But um, Revelation 21.8 says, For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers, and more persons than sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Anybody, has anybody in this room ever told a lie? Ever? Like even once? Ever been deceptive? Ever? This should be pretty convicting because that says all liars are going to go to the lake of fire. That's what that says. So what are we going to do? I would say most Bible issues are answered in the verses before or the verses after. Okay, Abby, so let's look at the verses before. Look at verse 6. This is good news. This isn't bad news if you're a believer. Then he said, it's done. My purpose for the now, as we live it, is over. So evil will have been permitted, defeated, forever quarantined. I'm the Alpha and Omega, first and last letters of the alphabet, uh, beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Salvation is not something you do for God. It's something he does for you. You don't buy it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't unbuy it. You can't undeserve it. The one who overcomes, overcoming means believing Jesus is the Christ, will inherit these things. I'll be his God. I'll be his son. But to the cowardly and unbelieving, cowardly and unbelieving is the umbrella under which all those individual offenses are listed. We're talking about a contrast between believers in verse 7 like David, like the Samaritan woman, like the murderer on the cross. He would have killed several people. That thief on the cross was actually a murderer, was a terrorist. Uh, those folks are forgiven murderers, liars, adulterers, whatever. But to the cowardly and unbelieving, those who don't trust Jesus as Christ, uh, and he lists some of their worst characteristics. So verse 8 is talking about all unforgiven uh abominable, idolaters, sorcerers, immoral persons, and stuff like that. Uh, David was a believer before, during, and after his murder, but he faced a lot of bad suffering because of he did a very bad thing. Uh, look at verse 16. Got to read the entire context, or you're going to get some really bad theology uh, from passages like that. 
But, going back to the thought of verse 14, if anyone suffers as a Christian because of the name, because you've identified with him, his ethic, his uh, movement, uh, that person is not to be ashamed. And that can be translated embarrassed or disappointed. Sometimes Christians that face certain types of suffering, especially if they've heard this thing, if you have enough faith, you won't face certain types of suffering. They, they feel embarrassed. They feel like there's got to be something wrong with me, with my faith, you know. Often people get embarrassed or disappointed with God. And that's part of, it doesn't matter how spiritual you are. If you get cut, you're going to bleed. And if you suffer a loss, you're going to grieve. And the deeper the grief, the deeper the grieving process. And they've analyzed this. And human beings typically, just like when you get cut, you bleed. And you can kind of break down the bleeding and the clotting process into certain steps. And it happens every time if you're healthy. Uh, when you got serious grief on you, you're going to go through stages of grief. Denial, bargaining, anger, resolution. And quite often people with certain types of diagnoses get mad at the doctor, get mad at the pastor, you know, get mad at God, uh, get mad at anybody who tries to help them, uh, get, gets mad at themselves. And if I'd only stopped drinking milk when Sharon warned me about milk, I wouldn't have had this tumor grow out of my ear or whatever, you know. So, uh, that doesn't justify sinful anger at God. It does explain why even you might be tempted to think like that for a while, you know. And typically, as we hang in there, God gives us the grace to work through that. So don't be ashamed or embarrassed with yourself, certainly not with God, when you suffer because of a Christian. But instead of being ashamed or disappointed or upset, glorify God. It's Don't see a sad status quo as a crisis for your faith, but just as a challenge and a critical opportunity to live out your faith. So that's those three verses. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we had a biblical case study talking about the same basic topic? Wouldn't that be good, James, if we had a biblical case study? Psalm 73, and and I talk about this one a lot. It's been very meaningful to me. Psalm 73, there's 150 psalms, but Psalm 73 is probably my favorite. Most people probably say Psalm 23. There's something about three in the in the, the label there, right? But basically, if you look at verse 21, we're going to get to the good stuff. For several verses, the uh, psalmist, his name is Asaph. You'll meet him in heaven sometime. Uh, eventually, you bump into him. Uh, gets mad at God, Natalie, because not just because bad things happen to good people, but he really gets mad because so many good things seem to happen to bad people. That's what really tees him off, you know? That's what really cheeses him off. Uh, and he works through it. And as he reflects on getting back to trusting and not pouting, he says, and you can read this in verse 21 and following, and I've got it in your notes if you want to look at that. He says, you know what, God? When my heart was embittered and I was really angry with you and I thought I had cause to be angry with you because I had problems and these some of these immoral people out there are rich and fat and happy and it just seems so unfair. And it is unfair. It is unfair at one level. When my heart was embittered and I was angry with you, then I was senseless and ignorant like a wounded animal. That's one reason. I know Phyllis Davis and some of you people, you run over a squirrel, you go try to help it. You know what? Those things can carry rabies. And they don't know you didn't try to hit them on purpose. I'm not going to risk my life because I hit a squirrel. I hate to hit squirrels. I hate it. I hate to. Isn't that a horrible sound when you're tired? It's an animal. I, I hate it. I would never do that on purpose. I never aim at them. But invariably, you're going to hit a skunk or something, and I'm not going to go out there and try to save it. Uh, I, you know, because uh, wounded animals can do big damage. 
Nevertheless, he says, even at my worst moment, when I was basically blaspheming, I'm continually with you because you've taken hold of my hand. It's not me holding on to you. It's you're holding on to me. That's the way salvation is. It's of the Lord, you know. Uh, in the meanwhile, even in the midst of the suffering that he continues to deal with, the suffer- he has the same circumstances at the end of the psalm he does at the beginning where he's panicking and all upset. In the meanwhile, even in the midst of this great suffering, with your counsel, you'll guide me, primarily through the Tanakh, you know, right, through the Scripture and the Holy Spirit and good input uh, from Christians and just good common sense. And afterward, receive me to everlasting glory. Who have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth, which means I need nothing really on earth. That's what I really need, that connection with you. My flesh and my heart will fail. Talking about inevitable suffering. It's going to happen if you live long enough. But God, you are the strength of my heart and everything I need forever. That's what that means. For behold, all who are far from you, you know, the cowardly and the unbelieving... Uh, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. You have destroyed all those who fail to trust in you. But as for me, the nearness of God now is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. And so rather than second-guessing him in my suffering, my job is to tell other people of all your works. First Peter 14, 15, and 16. This is not content we haven't already seen in First Peter, but it has more nuance, doesn't it? As we go through additional coats of paint, uh, the uh, result is just that much better. And so suffering in the Christian life, roots and responses, what we talked about, uh, you know, just to show you how hard I'm working for you here, I went through uh, choices and causes and choices. Suffering in the Christian life, causes and choices. Suffering in the Christian life, stress and strategies. I like that one. Uh, suffering the Christian life, troubles and troubleshooting. But I came up with, uh, and you got to do the alliteration thing. You know, I get extra points for that, right? Uh, suffering Christian life, not now, because you just bragged about it. Roots and responses. And so I would say this as we close: to sail and not sink spiritually when you're when you're suffering as a Christian. We need to recognize the type of suffering we are dealing with. And remain faithful by responding appropriately. Uh, we said there are three kinds of uh, categories of suffering. Good suffering. What's that? Suffering because, in spite of the fact, you're doing good stuff. You're suffering in spite of that fact. Uh, bad suffering. The person has no friends. She needs to stop being implacable and hypercritical and a backbiter and unrealistic and a selfish taker. That kind of person can probably have some friends. If that person will repent, change their mind, stop rationalizing their behavior, and get with the program. What's inherent suffering? Look at my hairline. I had lots of hair. Look at my eyes. You wouldn't believe these new glasses I've got, you know. Uh, I've got lifts in my, I'm actually only five foot four. I've got lifts in my shoes so you can see me behind the pulpit. No, I'm kidding about that part, but I'm getting shorter all the time. Uh, So rather than releasing us from the responsibilities of Christian living, tough times should refine us as we continue to hang in there. When you're suffering, in many ways you're actually blessed. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, let this not just be uh, abstract information, but I pray the Holy Spirit who inspired the text and has illumined it to us would now uh, let it kind of incarnate 
in the way we think about priorities and about ourselves and our circumstances and the world around us. Uh, not that we'd ever be masochistically looking for suffering. We're not seeking martyrdom. But uh, because some of our suffering we're causing ourselves and some of our suffering we're tempted maybe to abate because uh, if we stop doing the right things, it might get better. And some of our suffering is just because we're living in a fallen world where people do get diabetes or cancer or have car wrecks or lose their jobs or get old and lose their good looks. And so, Father, give us... Uh, more divine viewpoint kind of perspective as we feed on this truth, not just this information, but it's transforming truth. And let us live it out so that people who might want to slander us because of our faith would actually rejoice uh, in seeing the reality of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.